So if you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24, and we will be today in verses 14, excuse me, 15 through 28, Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28, please remain standing as I read from God's word. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant... And for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then... If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The Lord bless the reading of his holy word. Would you join me in prayer once more? Father, we we come to you today before this passage. Lord, it's a difficult passage to grasp. Lord, I know there's so many different views, and I pray, oh God, that we would really get to the crux of the heart of Christ, as we just sang how amazing you are, that we would see the beauty and the glory of Jesus as a prophet and as a really caring and loving and helpful pastor, the good shepherd. So Lord, I pray you would bless your people, encourage them, strengthen them, challenge them through this sermon today, and I pray that you would give me strength, Lord. I pray that you would keep me from error, keep me from uh, putting my foot in my mouth in any way. Keep me from not serving your people well. Keep me focused on Jesus, that your people might see him clearly today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And as you do, um, I, I've done a lot of uh, premarital counseling over the years with different folks. And um, as I'm doing my premarital counseling, I spend, I mean, if you do premarital counseling with me, you kind of think marriage is like really, really horrible. <laughs> because I don't spend a lot of time on the good stuff, right? Because who needs that? When the day, when the sun is shining and everything is great, it's like, hey, we, we're in love, we're happy, everything's good. It's the challenges that we need help with, right? And so I will oftentimes tell people something like this. I'm telling you now. I'm telling you now it's going to be really, really hard. 
Marriage is tough. Marriage is beautiful. Marriage is amazing. But marriage is really, really hard. And they look at me and they're like, got it. We're good. We understand. And I'm like inside thinking, no, you don't. You don't understand. But you will understand. And I'm going to tell you some things right now ahead of time that if you can grasp and you can remember when that pain comes, then you, you will more than likely get through the challenges and the problems. So if, if through the pain you'll follow the word of God, you're going to be okay. And I think about that as I come to this passage this morning because the disciples are asking Jesus a question and, and we, we looked at in the early part of chapter Matthew 24. Um, the world is already messed up. He's given us some, some, some interesting and crazy things that are going on and that's the truth of the world even to this day here 2,000 years later. The world is messed up, isn't it? We don't have to look very far for that. If you have a newspaper subscription or a digital <laughs> subscription, I don't know if anybody gets the paper anymore, but it uh, comes in handy when you have the paper when you have a bonfire. I just did that last week, so, you know. The world is messed up, but here's what I want to say. If, through the pain, you follow the word of God made flesh, you'll be okay. And so that's really what I want to practically proclaim to you this morning is Jesus answering this question, how can followers of Jesus live faithfully in a broken world? This is a prophetic passage. And Jesus is the prophet. We've already seen Matthew set him up as the prophet, the one, the greatest of prophets, right? He's the prophet, he's the priest, the great high priest, he's, he's the king of all kings. And here we see him speak prophetically, but we see it. What I don't want you to miss in the midst of that is, is to see his pastor's heart. I don't want you to miss how he's caring for these men that he loves so dearly. He cares for his people. And even as the great prophet, even as the, the Lord of history, he cares for his people. And he's going to shepherd them very well. So Jesus, as our great senior pastor, he's the pastor of pastors. He's the great shepherd. Let's see that heart today as we hear from him. As we looked back on the passage, um, we certainly know that we see interpretive difficulties. I've spent a lot of time talking about that, maybe too much time talking about that. And here we have another interpretive challenge before us this morning. There are massive disagreements and differences on the timing of this passage. Is it in the past? Is it in the future? Or is it, is it a mixture of both? And, you know, guys a lot smarter than me have come to different conclusions. But what I see is no matter what the timing of what we see in this passage, actually it's the same application. And so I would preach the same application no matter what uh, position I stood in today. But I want to do my best to keep it simple. I don't have time to go over every interpretation. I, I wish I did. And, and I, and I want to say, as I've said each week, I could be wrong. I, I don't think so, but I could be because guys a lot smarter than me tell me I'm wrong. And what we can do is me and all the theology nerds, we can get together and have fun discussing these issues and arm wrestle over it. They're not unimportant. I don't mean to make light of them. But in the end, what do you do? 
with your eschatology? What do you do with it? The implication is this. Live faithfully. You live faithfully. So I'm, I'm going to share my view today. I believe this passage is already fulfilled. And I'll explain that as we go through the sermon today. The context of the passage is, again, Matthew's whole gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom. We see Jesus has come to bring the kingdom. All the way back in chapter 4, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've come through much of, well, we're almost to the end, although it's a really long end. We've got to remember where we are. We're in the midst of Holy Week. Jesus is going to go to the cross in our text in just a few days. He's already come into Jerusalem through his triumphal entry where he was welcomed as a king. He went into the temple. He inspects the temple. He finds it wanting. He finds evil and hypocrisy and sin in the temple by the people of God. He's confronted by the leaders, the religious leaders, the scribes and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they try to get him to mess up and say something that's going to get him into trouble. Because they want to arrest him and kill him. But they, they can't defeat him. He turns and then pronounces the woes upon them. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You're supposed to be the leaders of the people of God. And you're leading them to destruction. He then, at the end of chapter 23, weeps over Jerusalem, the city. He announces then to the disciples that the temple will be destroyed. They leave the city, they leave the temple, they go to the Mount of Olives and they say, Jesus, look at these amazing buildings, they're so wonderful. And Jesus tells them not one stone is going to be left upon another. And then they ask him a question. And that's what starts this, all of that discourse. It's a momentous question. In verse 3 of chapter 24, they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How many questions is that in your Bibles? Two questions, right? When are these things going to be? And then what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So they, they asked two questions, but they saw it as one question. They saw that if the temple is going to be destroyed, then the end is right here. You're about to usher in your, your, your full, the fullness of your kingdom right now. And so Jesus spends the next whole chapter, chapter 24, answering their question, and even going into chapter 5, helping us understand what he's saying about this question. In summary, let me sum up from a 30,000 foot view, the way I'm seeing Jesus answer this question. They ask when. Jesus is going to answer them in verse 34, this generation. The biblical generation is roughly 40 years. So in essence, he's saying within 40 years, this is going to happen. The temple is going to be destroyed. What's the sign? Well, when you see, that's what we're going to look at today. There's something you're going to see. He already spent the, the, the first part of the chapter telling them there's going to be catastrophic events and you're expecting the end and there's, there's these catastrophic events, but, but that's not the sign that you need to be looking for. Don't freak out thinking the end of the world is here. 
Don't be deceived, we talked last week. Don't be afraid. Hang on, endure to the end. Go tell the good news. So when will these things be? 40 years, within 40 years. And when you see this sign, then you're going to know. Well, when are you coming? And what is the end of the age? And Jesus' answer, paraphrased in verse 36, is, I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows, not the Son of Man, not the angels of heaven, only the Father. And so temple destruction is, is, is a certainty. And it's, it's certainly an end, but it's not the end. Jesus goes on, he's going to teach later in the passage that he will return. But you don't know when he's going to return, so don't speculate. And don't, don't grow apathetic about it, just live faithfully get out and be about your mission of proclaiming the gospel Jesus is saying these words prophetically and Jesus is the great pastor so he's going to prophesy with pastoral wisdom with give his, his disciples his followers guidance but here's the challenge and this is where it's hard for for us and I'm again I'm sharing with you my interpretation of the way I read this text he's He's talking to them throughout Matthew 24 as a prophet, as he often did. And the challenge we have with that in 2023 is Old Testament Jewish prophets spoke very strangely to our ears. <laughs> you ever read through the prophets? A lot of people will go through their Bibles and they start reading through certain parts and they're just like, okay, I, I have no clue what is going on in this thing. What's going on with this cosmic things, crazy things in the sky, the beasts and horns and, and giant, you know, beasts look like grasshoppers and, and locusts and, and guys walking around naked for, for, for a long time and little model of the city and laying on the side. Prophets did things like that all throughout scripture and when prophets spoke, they spoke apocalyptically. Apocalyptically, what does apocalypse mean? Most times we think it means the end, the end of the world, the apocalypse. It's not what it means. It's a Greek word that means to uncover or to reveal. And so when prophets were speaking in the Old Testament, it's because God had uncovered some things for them, and they saw these visions, and they saw these things that, that they described in this language that was difficult to grasp because it was full of visions and images and, and symbolism, and it often leaves readers of the Bible confused. It's strange to us. We're, we're not Jewish. We're not immersed into the language of Jewish apocalyptic literature or, and, and poetry. And so it's hard to grasp. Hope to point some of these things out to you, but here's one way to look at it, how Jesus is saying, so we can understand the way this apocalyptic, prophetic, poetry, literature works. It's, you ever been to uh, Yosemite? One of my favorite places. Oh yeah, you were just there, brother. Rob was just there. It's one of my favorite places on earth. And I remember for the very first time driving through the tunnel in Yosemite, and you, you come out the end of the tunnel and you park there, and when you just drive out of the tunnel, it's like this view opens up. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful views I've ever seen in my life. I remember parking and sitting at the, at the 
uh, stone fence there and what, and looking out upon this amazing view. And you can see El Capitan and you can see Half Dillon way over there. And I remember looking at the beauty of it. And here's what I remember thinking. The first time we went there, we were going to be there for like three days. And I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to be able to hike the whole thing. Because <laughs> that's what it looked like from my perspective. Like, oh, that's not that far. That's really close. And look, they're really close together when the truth is, like to hike the Half Dome, you're talking about like a 12, 16 miles, I think it is, uh, there back. It takes like 12 hours. It's a, it's a, you, you ain't messing around with that hike. I didn't have a clue what I was thinking or doing. So when it comes to apocalyptic literature and protein, the way, the way these things were revealed to the prophets, it's almost like that. They see something up close, and then in that up, up close, they, there's, there's something else seen that's a little bit further, but you can't tell because of the perspective how vast the, 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 the timeline is or how vast the, the separation is. And then there's something way over there, this final mountain way, way over there. And so when, when we're struggling to grasp these things, that's why there's so many differences and challenges about how do, we, how do we bring this into understanding it. So in the end, no matter what you understand, here's what I hope you get. Jesus is an amazing, the prophet of prophets, and he's a great pastor to his people. And here's what he's going to teach us, to be obedient, to be prayerful, and to be discerning. Obedient, prayerful, and discerning. Let's jump, jump into each of these three points this morning in answer to this question, how can followers of Jesus live faithfully in a broken world? Point one, be obedient. Be obedient. This, this is the power of Jesus that he has to prophesy, to foresee the future and to tell it. And then the authority to make commands. He is the word made flesh and he commands things. So starting in verse 15. So, based on everything I've just said of what not to look at as a sign. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then I have ESV, which has parentheses. Some of your versions don't. Let the reader understand. There's debates on, is, did Jesus actually say that, or did Matthew kind of put that in? Uh, uh, just basically saying, like, hey, there, there's going to be a key for you to understand. There's something that you need to see and know. And he's talking to, to, to the Jewish Christians, right, that are his primary audience here. And when you see the abomination of, of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, get your scroll out, understand that when you see that, there's going to be something that's going to happen. Verse 15 of Matthew 24, it's a critical uh, part, a critical change, juncture in the, all of that discourse to, the, to this point, Jesus has referred to these general signs that would characterize the, the period preceding Israel's collapse. And now he comes here to, to verse 15, and he, he gives them a specific answer to the question, when will these things be? So he says, here's when they'll be, when you see. When you see what? He calls it the abomination of desolation, literally the abomination that causes desolation or, or a waste, wasteland. The, the word abomination means it, disgust. It's an object of disgust. It's an object of, 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 of hatred. It, it's revulsion 
So in, primarily in the Old Testament, it's spoken of as, as idolatry. Idolatrous offense that was an affront to the true worship of God. He references Daniel, the prophet Daniel. So he wants them to pull back and look at something in, in Daniel. The abomination of desolation is re referenced four different times in the book of Daniel. The references are there in your outline. Chapter 8, 13, 9, 27, 11, 31, and 12, 11. And the first and immediate reference was to this Syrian king. His name was Antiochus, who ruled over Palestine way back in the years 175 to 65 B.C. The guy was a crazy guy. He called himself Manifest God. Antiochus Epiphanes is what he called himself and others called him. But his enemies called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means the madman, the crazy guy. And in 168 B.C., this guy slaughtered 40,000 Jews. And he plundered the temple. He then took a pig, which we all know a good Jew would never do. It was considered an abomination. He sacrificed this pig on the altar of burnt offering. And then he took broth from the unclean flesh that was all over the holy grounds and, and he took broth that was boiled from that and he sprinkled the broth all over the holy items. Deliberately and purposefully defiling the temple of God. And then he built up an image of Zeus, the Greek god, and he put it above the altar. It was a sacrilege in, that was of indescribable proportions that was indelibly imprinted on the minds of the Jews of Jesus' day. Every good Jew knew this, understood this, hated this. And so Jesus is bringing this up, envisioning something of a repeated performance in his day of what happened back 160 some odd years before that. And so when he says, let the reader understand, he's saying, reader, open up the Old Testament book of Daniel and understand what it's saying. Understand the true meaning and the fulfillment of the coming abomination of desolation. And so certainly the prophet Daniel first saw this abomination of desolation as Antiochus Epiphanes when he desecrated the temple, and then second as something that was to occur in relationship to the temple and to Jerusalem within the lifetime of his contemporaries. And so what was specifically the abomination of desolation that Jesus referred to? There's a lot of different ideas. We don't have time to cover them all. You can study all this out. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> but I believe, I believe it's answered from to us by, by Luke. In Luke chapter 21, verse 20, we see Luke's account of his of the same Olivet discourse. And Luke says, writing to Gentiles, the Jews would understand abomination of desolation from Daniel. Luke, writing primarily to Gentiles, doesn't use that language. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And so I take the abomination of desolation to be the armies of Rome encircling the city of Jerusalem. Titus, 
and all the other generals of Rome that came, and, 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 and while the city of Jerusalem was still burning, the, the soldiers brought their legionary standards into the temple precincts, and they offered sacrifices there, declaring Titus to be victor, saying the gods of Rome are better than the God of Israel. Idolatrous representations of, of, of Caesar, of, of, of Rome, of, of the, the eagle, the Roman eagle on the Jewish flags and standards. That would have constituted just the worst imaginable blasphemy to the Jewish people. Josephus writes quite a bit of this history. This, I, brought, I brought him with me today. We're going to read this book right now, so I hope you brought lunch. No, just kidding. <laughs> But I recommend that you read Josephus. If you don't want to get a copy, you can find it for free online. Josephus was a Jew. He was a Pharisee who was alive during this time. And he was a general in the Jewish army. And he ended up defecting to the Romans. And the Romans, Titus, took a, the, the, the guy who eventually became the emperor... He was a son of, of, of the emperor uh, Vespasian, but he took a liking to Josephus and, and allowed Josephus not only to live, but to become a Roman citizen and then to write a history of the Jews. And he writes very detailed accounts of what we're talking about today, what happened to Jerusalem and to the temple in between the years 66 and 70 AD. In that he writes these words. He says, The Romans, upon the flight of the seditious into the city, and upon the burning of the holy house itself, and all of the buildings lying round about it, brought their incense to the temple and set them over against its eastern gate. And there did they offer sacrifices to them, and there did they make Titus emperor, you know, imperator, with the greatest acclamations of joy. And so we see this amazing point in history which I find a lot of Christians have never really studied. But it's an incredibly important event that took place that's, that's, that obviously Jesus here, according to my interpretation, is using as the sign for his people for something. Again, we don't always grasp the nature of it because we're not Jews, most of us. I don't know, anybody Jewish background in here? Most of us don't have that. So we don't appreciate it as much as we should. But think about it again. Put that picture, first picture up there of the temple. This is a, a big, very large, look at the guy in the corner. You can see this is a large model over in the Holy Land of the city of Jerusalem and of the temple. And so you just, I just want you to take note of how vast and large this structure was. And what utter devastation and destruction was taking place by what Jesus predicted would happen and then happening. Not one stone left upon another. Look at the massive size of this edifice. The stones were as big as this dumpster sitting out here in the parking lot. It was not an easy feat and it was an incredible devastation that we'll talk about in a minute. Go on to the next one. These are the stones. If you go there today... Now, they were buried for centuries, but they were excavated, and now you can see that there's these stones, this rubble that's left, the devastation of the temple that's just been broken apart. It was broken apart stone by stone by stone. And then you see, next slide, the 
This is the arch, arch of Titus in the city of Rome. If you've been to Rome, you may have seen it. And on that arch, is one of, it's basically a celebration. It was built about 10 years after the Romans won the war against the Jews and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and they carried the artifacts away. You can see the menorah, different artifacts from the temple that they were in a celebratory way rejoicing in their great conquest. And so in understanding all of these historical events, remember this, that Jesus is answering the question of the disciples about these things. This temple, these stones that you see, all of which I believe would occur, well, they would occur within the lifetime of this generation, which I take to then be this abomination of desolation, especially with what Luke says. He calls the abomination of desolation when you see the armies surround the city. So there's a lot going on historically, and we are going to jump into some, some history because it's a major part of it. But what is Jesus doing, and why is he saying this? He's giving the sign. When you see, when, when there's earthquakes, when there's wars and rumors of wars, when, when everything's, you know, you're getting persecuted and people are killing you and this and that, don't freak out, don't be afraid, endure to the end and just wait, but watch out for this. When you see this happen, when, when the armies are surrounding Rome, or excuse me, Jerusalem, the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem, verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Run. Get out of the city. Run away. Verse 17, let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. What is Jesus doing? As a really good pastor, he's giving them guidance. And as a really good prophet, he's giving them the way of escape. Here's what you need to do. Get out. Take me seriously. My word is true. So get out. He gives them this plan of escape. When you see the armies start surrounding, know something. You're not supposed to stay and fight with the zealots. You're not supposed to pick up your sword and, and, and join the physical cause and fight for Jerusalem. Perhaps there would have been a day where that was necessary, but not anymore. Jesus will die at the hands of the Romans on the charge of being a Jewish rebel, but they're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to run. They're supposed to waste no time. They're supposed to hurry up and get out of the city. Those in the countryside of Judea, it's saying, you got to take to the hills. Because the Romans are coming to ravage the farmlands and the villages. And that's precisely what occurred during those years. Pillaging farms and land and killing people. It was vast and widespread so jesus is saying if you're up on the housetop which jewish homes at the time the ancient homes they would have stairs on the outside he's saying don't even run back inside to get anything well my valuables you don't have time get out your life is more important than your stuff and then if you're out in the field, the average Jew who worked out in the field would wear a cloak at night and sleep in that cloak. And they would, when they'd go out to the field and the sun would start getting hot, they'd take the cloak off and leave it at the edge of the field. It was very important because it got cold that night and you needed that. He says, don't even go back and get it. There's an urgency. There's, a, there's, a, there, there's a, a, an importance to what Jesus is saying. Get out. 
So Jesus is telling them these commands. They are to be obedient. Just as when we are given commands by the living word, by the written word, we are to obey. Not only because it's right, but it's also for your good. A lot of times we look at, or people at least have looked at the laws of God or the rules of God and, and things that scripture commands us to as oppressive and as, hey, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> the Christian heart is never a heart of autonomy. It's never a heart that says, oh, I'm not sure if that's particularly what, what I want to do, Lord. When Jesus commands, and notice he has the authority to command, he expects absolute obedience. And let me tell you this, he deserves it. <laughs> he deserves it. He loves us, and his commands are not burdensome. And his commands are meant to bring, bring life and healing and protection and beauty into the lives of his people. It's exactly what he's doing here. Save your lives. Be obedient. Secondly, be prayerful. Be prayerful. Here we're going to see Jesus' divine care as a really good pastor to call his people to pray and then to answer those prayers. Verse 19, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. My version has exclamation point. Do you see this? This heart of Christ, there's, a, there's an emphasis here. Oh, I'm hurting. That's what the, the word means. Oh, I'm broken. I'm troubled for whom? For the vulnerable. I'm troubled for, for women who are pregnant in those days. Why? Because if, if you've ever been pregnant and a refugee, they don't go well together. Pregnant and hiking up the mountain doesn't go well together. Those who are nursing infants in those days. Do you see his heart of care for his people? He goes on in verse 20. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. In wintertime in Palestine, the, the roads would be almost impractical or, or almost impassable. Mud from rains and harsh weather, cold temperatures, all these things. They would slow you down, make mountain hideaways unbearable. So pray, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Why not the Sabbath? The gates would be closed. You couldn't travel far. During this time, it is particularly important too because there were a lot of zealots in the city who, if they saw you leaving, would execute you. You couldn't buy, you couldn't sell. Traveling was restricted so Jesus says, troubled for the, those who are going to be pregnant, those who are nursing babies, it's going to be hard for you. But pray. Pray that your flight isn't going to be in winter or on the Sabbath. You know, I used to um, kind of look sideways many years ago, at those who would pray for traveling mercies. <laughs> like, really, Jesus, just pray that you're safe as you drive across town? 
was, I think, my ignorance and my, my false piety. You know, thinking like, the Christian life's not safe. Why are you praying for your safety? <laughs> but uh, I think it's okay, okay to pray as the Lord taught us to pray. Deliver us from evil. From the evils of fallen people, wicked rulers, unfair judges, false teachers, yes, certainly, but also from the evils of this fallen world. Oh God, protect us and our family from, from, from lack. Protect us on this trip. Don't let that plane crash. Protect us from earthquakes, from wars, from car wrecks, from such things. Keep us safe. I think we should pray. For traveling mercies. Then another question hits my mind in, under, in looking through this passage. God is sovereign, right? God's sovereign over all history. History is going somewhere. God is taking it somewhere and he knows exactly where he's going with it. And so in light of that truth, it's certainly not strange to, to read the, the commands to, to, to be ready for the unexpected, to be prepared, right? It's, it's not strange to hear that in light of that, but what might seem strange is that prophetically accurate Jesus tells his followers to pray to an absolutely sovereign God. And it might beg the question, if you understand that God is in control of all history, well, if, if God has determined that Jerusalem will fall in winter, or, or perhaps on a Sabbath, <coughs> then God has determined it. Why would I bother him with my plea for safe travel? And let me just say, that's not how God works. And that's not how prayer works. Prayer is mysterious. It's as mysterious as, as the relationships between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We know, we know God is sovereign. But we also know God hears our prayers, just like you heard the prayers of the Old Testament saints. That when Moses prayed, things happened. When Abraham prayed, things happened. And when you pray, things happen. God has moved. How does that line up? I don't know. But scripture says to pray. Jesus said to pray. You think he was playing with them? Pray that it's not in winter. And guess what? It was in August. I believe God answered their prayer. Don't underestimate the power of prayer to the sovereign God. Don't allow a false determinism in your understanding of sovereignty to stop and hinder your prayer life. As we look at these instructions to these Jews, Jewish Christians, they were in fact followed by those who were in Judea and in Jerusalem. There's historical documents aplenty that point to how in, in late A.D. 66, the, this Christian community, under the leadership of Simeon, withdrew to the village of Pella in Perea, which is in modern-day Jordan. This is a mountainous region. Now, it was the foothills, so they were obedient disciples. They just weren't perfectly obedient. <laughs> they went to the foothills, not to the mountains. Eusebius, one of the early church historians, wrote these words. He says, the people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded 
by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city who were worthy of it to depart and to dwell in one of the cities of Perea, which they called Pella. To those who believed on Christ, to, excuse me, to it, those who believed on Christ traveled from Jerusalem so that when holy men had altogether deserted the royal capital of the Jews and the whole land of Judea, he's saying all the Christians got out. How'd they do that if the army was surrounding you? I believe providentially. History records that the first Roman commander, his name was Cestius, who had surrounded the city at, at some point in the Jewish war early on, inexplicably and without warning, ordered his troops to withdraw. Took them to the sea. And the Jews, the 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 army of the Jews saw that as a sign. They're, they chased them down and tried to kill. They killed like 5,000 of them. And at that moment, guess who got out? The Christians fled. According to Josephus, after Cestius's siege and his retreat, the Jews left Jerusalem like swimmers from a sinking ship. And by all historical accounts, no Christian died in this great holocaust that was to take place shortly thereafter. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Now we see and feel the weight of the reason for the urgency. The reference here, I believe, is to the events of, of April through September, 70 AD. Josephus, again, the historian who witnessed these things, tells us about the incredible atrocities that took place during that time. The war that broke out in 66 AD between Rome and the Jewish people certainly was, was, was a an intensified continuation of the hostilities that had been brewing for years. The Jews hated Rome, the Romans tolerated the Jews, and finally enough was enough. The city was overrun with people. There was a bunch of murderers and thieves and zealots and criminals who came running into the city, flocking to the city for refuge. The city was without law and order. Chaos reigned. Anarchy reigned. There were three different factions of, of, of warriors that were killing each other and fighting each other all throughout the time. The Romans are trying to kill all of them. At one point, in just one incident, more than 12,000 of the city's nobles and leading citizens were tortured and killed by the zealots. And those who tried to escape had their throats cut. And their bodies were left to just rot in the streets. Burial was impossible. So huge piles of, of cadavers filled the streets or were just thrown over the city walls. I want you to feel the weight of this. Listen to Josephus. The noise of those that were fighting was incessant. Both day, both by day and by night, but the lamentations of those that mourned exceeded the noise of the fighting. They, moreover, were continually inventing 
pernicious things against each other, and when they had resolved upon anything, they executed it without mercy and omitted no method of torment or of barbarity. It was also the Passover season, and so right at this time, there's this momentary lull in the hostilities, and the city gates are thrown open for a whole bunch more people to come in. The population of the cities just swelled, and, and, and that greatly contributed to the slaughter that was to take place. Not only by the sword, but by famine. Famine would set in as the walls of the city were attacked. The granaries and the storehouses of food were deliberately burned. The water reservoirs were polluted. Listen to Josephus again. The madness of the seditions did also increase together with their famine, and both those miseries were every day inflamed more and more for there was no corn that appeared anywhere publicly. It was now a miserable case, a sight that would justify bringing tears into our eyes, insomuch that children would pull the very morsels that their fathers were eating out of their mouths. And so did mothers do to their infants. People were getting rid of their property and trying to sell their homes. They also were selling their own children. To get food. They would regularly eat from the, from the sewers. Cattle dung. Pigeon dung. Pieces of leather that they could get a hold of. Hay, they would boil hay. Things that most dogs wouldn't even dare to touch. If anyone was suspected of hiding food, they were viciously tortured. If you looked healthy, your home was attacked. And if they found food in your home, viciously tortured. If they didn't find food in your home, viciously tortured because they thought you were hiding it. Just I mean, read this, this history. Some people would run in desperation to try to leave the city and they were ultimately captured. Thousands of people were crucified in plain sight of the city walls. They say up to 500 a day. They said it looked like a forest of crosses. There wasn't enough crosses for bodies and enough bodies for crosses. What a desperate, horrendous situation. Josephus says it's impossible to give every instance of the iniquity of these men. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly that neither did any other city suffer such miseries nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitless in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. There's so much more. I got a lot of Josephus here, but I'm just going to call you to read it. If you're interested, it's a great history but it's sad he tells at one point of even one woman who, who killed her own son for food I won't give you the details because there's kids here but others 
upon smelling the smell, came looking for the food. and She offers to share. It was tremendous sin, tremendous slaughter. Josephus says slaughter that continued until the soldiers grew weary of killing. They say blood was running through the streets so thick it was like a river. Think about it. Almost 100,000 Jewish survivors were sold into slavery or, or consigned to the gladiator shows. And according to Josephus, more than 1.1 million Jews died during the siege of that city. Over four horrendous years, it was an incredibly difficult and great trial. Josephus' final verdict on this history is this. The afflictions which befell the Jews were the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those wherein cities have fought against cities or nations against nations. It appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to those Jews, are not so considerable as they were. Now, that's quite a statement. Josephus was not a Christian. He's not trying to line up with what Jesus is saying, but we do see Jesus saying in verse 21, describing this event to be such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. And I know many have questioned that, like how that can uh, refer to these events of this horrible situation in Jerusalem. As bad as it was, there were more Jews killed in the Holocaust. Like, have you heard of World War II? Hello. <laughs> Joseph Stalin killed millions and millions of people, all of these horrible things. And I think there's a couple things. One, we don't grasp the dimensions of what occurred in AD 70 for the Jews. The Bible is a very Jewish book. You know that, right? And the savagery, savagery and the cruelty and the, 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 the atrocities that occurred were beyond comparison. Never so high a percentage of one city's population was destroyed. But also, how I understand that statement by Jesus is I believe Jesus is speaking in hyperbole as he often did, right? Jesus is the one that said, you know, cut your eye out, <laughs> cut your hand off if it causes you to sin and hate your mother and your father. It actually is a rhetorical device that's used many times throughout the Old Testament, throughout the ancient world. It was almost proverbial in the way that, that you would describe things. In uh, just a few verses, you can kind of see how this works throughout Scripture. Exodus 11:6. There shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. Exodus 9:18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I'll send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. There's a whole bunch of verses. They're listed, I think, on your outline. 
and it goes on and on and on. I think of, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, let me read a couple to you here from Second uh, Kings 18.5. says, he, Hezekiah, trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. That's in 2 Kings 18.5. So, so there's no king like uh, Hezekiah. He's the so super spiritual, great king, greatest of all, until Josiah. <laughs> There'll never be another one like him, but then a few chapters later, Josiah. There was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Is that a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. There's no contradictions in the Bible. The phraseology is hyperbole. It's hyperbolic, it, and it's, it's used to emphasize complete devotion to the Lord in this case. And so the prophets spoke this way. You can read it in Daniel. You can, you can read it in Ezekiel. This is prophetic language that was used. We use it, right? I caught a fish so big, it's the biggest fish ever in the world. Just, just If you want to know hyperbole, listen to Donald Trump talk. The greatest, biggest word, you know, it's always the biggest, right? Making a point. Also, in understanding how important this was to the nation of Israel, this is God's judgment that is consistent with the Mosaic Covenant. The destruction of Jerusalem it's too much to read for our time's sake, but read Deuteronomy 28. Look at the blessings for the obedience of Israel and look at the curses. Utter destruction. Devastation. In the midst of it all, Jesus knows what's coming and so he says to his disciples, pray. And I would challenge us today pray. 2,000 years later, Jesus still knows what's happening tomorrow because he planned it. He cares for you. He goes on in verse 22 and says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The destruction will not run its full course. The days will be shortened I believe, to allow the elect to survive. Why? Because he would build his church. The mission of God must go on. History must go on. So be obedient, disciples. Be obedient, Christians. Be prayerful. Take your request to God who cares for you. And then thirdly, be discerning. The last point shows Jesus as the truth to protect. It says in verse 23, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. There's going to be such deception that's going to come out. Josephus tells about a lot of these deceptions, these false messiahs that arose up. And Jesus is saying, if you're looking for me, and, and someone says, hey, he's over in the closet, don't believe him. He's not going to be hidden. That's a false Christ. Oh, yeah, but the guy did some amazing things. Don't believe him. Verse 26, or excuse me, verse 25, he says, see, I have told you 
beforehand. I'm letting you know right now. I'm giving you a heads up. You need to understand this. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And here's what I believe he's saying here now. The sign of desolation, the, the abomination of desolation, when you see the army surrounding, when Rome comes in to, to, to crush you all, get out of the city. But that's not the end of the world. That's, that's the beginning, if you will, of a whole new creation. And then what's going to happen is the people are going to come out and, and try to confuse you and deceive you with false gospels and false Christs. They're going to try to lead you astray. They're going to be so good they might even lead the elect astray. Christians are going to possibly fall, even would fall for it if it's possible. They're that good. So he's saying, I told you beforehand. Why? So you don't give them your credit card number. <laughs> That's why. So you don't fall for their schemes and their tricks. He says, no, when I come, when I'm coming again for the end, because you want to know when the end is coming, I'm coming like lightning. And you're not going to have anybody come and say, hey, Jesus is over in the corner. Everybody's going to know it that way. Just like lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says it in a little parable here in verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. My second coming will be obvious and unmistakable, just as one unmistakably can see the presence of a dead body when there's vultures flying around. You're not going to miss it. You're not going to secret. It's not going to just go by you and you're going to be like, whoa, where? Where is he? He's hiding himself. No, I'm coming like lightning in the sky. You'll see it. And you'll know. So be careful. Don't entertain rumors that, that another Messiah has returned or, or he's waiting off in some secluded desert location for you or, or he's in some inner, in, in city. We talked about that last week, all these false messiahs, even to this day, and they have followers. Jesus is going to talk more about this second coming in the passage. But he's saying... I want to care for you enough to tell you what's going to happen. And when you see this, know your Bible well enough to get out. And when you get out, be faithful. Live for me. Don't fall for tricks. Don't be deceived. We know our day today is marked by a continued spirit of deception. Even 1 Timothy 4.1.2 is helpful now. The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to, the, to the, his young protege in verse 1 of chapter 3, understand this, Timothy, in the last days there will come times of difficulties. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness, 
but denying its power. How do you live in that age? Are these things marking our age? You better believe it. John, or Jesus said in John 16, Behold, the hour is coming. And indeed it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, yet I'm not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. How do we live? How do we live faithfully in a broken world? You trust Christ. And out of trusting Christ, out of trusting Christ flows obedience. You know, that's where obedience comes from. It doesn't come from us. It comes from faith. It's the faith that has works, that's alive. Faith is obedient. Faith is prayerful. Are you struggling? Are you limping? Are you troubled at the brokenness of the world? Pray. Pray for protection. Pray for safety. Most of all, pray for the spread of the gospel all over this globe. And if you want to live faithful, study the books so you can tell Someone's trying to dupe you. Someone's trying to win you to a false Christ. Be obedient, be prayerful, be discerning. All of this only comes from hearts that trust him. How great of Jesus. I'm going to have the music team come and prepare for communion. How great of Jesus to care for his people so well. What love for his saints. And whether you interpret it like I do as a past fulfilled event or whether you see it as a, a future yet to be event, how great of Jesus to care for his people. How do we respond to this great pastor? How do we worship this great prophet? Obey his word. Depend on him in prayer. And be a discerning people.